If you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible, these folks will give you one. And Psalm 51 is almost similar to Psalm 32. It's, they're, they're both confessionary songs that David wrote after he had been confronted about his adultery and his murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Psalm 51. Before I have you stand for the reading of this, this is a contrition psalm. He's, it means he's broken and contrite and he's pouring his heart out before the Lord. And this all occurred when, when David was confronted by Nathan the prophet after David had committed adultery and murder. You know the story. Uh, in the spring when kings go out to war, David stayed back and his armies went out to fight. And then David was on the rooftop. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He called for her. They said, is, is this not the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the daughter of, of Eliam, uh, one of your generals? You don't want to do this, David, basically. And he says, bring her here. He sleeps with her, commits adultery, um, and, and there's no secrets in a palace. Uh, David tries, when, when Bathsheba comes to him and says, I'm pregnant, David tries to cover it up. And, and there's no secrets in a palace. Uh, it was Winston Churchill who said, if you want to keep secrets from your enemies, don't tell your friends. And, uh, and so he tried to cover it up. He brought Uriah off the front lines. Uriah knew what was up. He wasn't going to give David the benefit of trying to, you know, pull the wool over his eyes or, or you know get away with this. So, so Uriah slept out in front of his wife's house so that all, everyone in the public could realize, I'm not playing David's game. If she's pregnant, as I, I assume her to be, you're going to find out, but I want you to know I'm not the person who's done this. This is the king's doing. And, and uh, David's a little irritated by it, so by proxy, he puts a hit on, on Uriah. He tells Joab, put Uriah on the front lines and then call the troops back and, and have him killed by the enemy. And so he, he murders. He puts a hit on Uriah. He basically murders him by proxy. And so David's committed murder, murder and adultery. He's lied. And he's, he's thought he's gotten away with it. And, uh, and it's Nathan who confronts him with a story about a man who had a little lamb. And it was his only one. He raised it like his own child. And then there was a wealthy man who had all kinds of livestock. Somebody came to visit the wealthy man. He didn't feed the visitors with his own livestock. He went and took the poor man's only lamb. And David was furious. He said, the wealthy man, that man must die. And then at that point... Nathan looks at David and he says, you're that man. And David all of a sudden realizes God's always known. He's confirmed it through his prophet, Nathan. And he says, God, I've sinned. And, and David owns it. And like we covered in Psalm 32, David owns it. And, and the secret of David's life, and for all of us to apprehend, is that when we're honest with God, he'll always be merciful with us. But we have to be honest with him. You've got to call it what it is. You've got to acknowledge it and see it through his eyes and accept it, confess it, admit it, and repent of it. And God will be merciful. And, and this is where we come to this passage of Scripture where Psalm 32 is a song David wrote for everyone in all of Israel to sing. And they were all aware of what David did. It was almost like his song was on hit Israeli radio. And he writes another song, Psalm 51, which is very similar and even... The commentators wrote at the beginning, it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in with Bathsheba. And, um, and he writes this, this song and everybody sings it and they know all about David and David owns it. David owns it. He owns it. And uh, this, this brings us to the study. Now, because I've gone into depth on Psalm 32, I'm not going to go into great depth on Psalm 51. I'm going to focus on a word we're going to find twice in the passage. And that word is iniquity or iniquities. It's a term now what we would consider Christianese because the world doesn't know what it means. We use the term iniquities often, and we don't really completely know what it means, and we'll cover that today. 
but let's read the psalm in its entirety. And in doing so, you're going to get great commentary by the Holy Spirit because you're going to know exactly what it is by the time you finish reading it. And then we'll jump in and take a look at that word iniquity. So would you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord with me? Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I have acknowledged my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. There's that word. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you are a merciful God, that you're patient and long-suffering, wanting that none would perish and all would be saved. You want us to come to repentance. You desire in our innermost parts that we would recognize what you already see. And Lord, find mercy and grace as we agree with you and confess. And so, Lord, I, I pray that this psalm today would be a comfort to all who can hear my voice. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd minister deeply and profoundly in the lives of all who are present. And so, Lord, we give you the glory and the honor and the praise, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please, have a seat. David said, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And then he goes on to point out, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And he lays all this out. And then after God does this for him, and he doesn't cast, away, cast him away from his presence, and he, he upholds him by his generous spirit, David says, now, then, then I will, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. And so here we are thousands of years later after David poured his heart out to God, and we're learning from David's words, he is teaching transgressors God's ways. And, and this psalm is still in effect thousands of years later to teach us and instruct us and bless us. And, and 
You have to understand, David had committed two sins in Israel for which there was no sacrifice. Um, he deserved death. He deserved death. That's it. And, and, and that laid it out. And David used this word iniquity. Iniquity. It's a, it's a Christian word or Christianese that the world has lost its definition. We don't quite grasp it. And oftentimes, folks who don't go to church will hear Christians speak of iniquities, and they'll kind of roll their eyes like, whatever that means. But I wanted to give you the Hebrew definition of iniquity. It's real simple. It means, it means guilt worthy of punishment. Guilt worthy of punishment. Iniquity is sin at its worst. You, d- you deserve to be punished. You are completely and utterly wrong and you deserve punishment iniquity is premeditated you thought about it and you did it it's continuing and it's escalating you might be in the middle of it right now you may be neck deep in it you might be like a bear rolling in a dead carcass and getting that stench all over you and then you're you're smack dab in the middle of it it's when you give yourself over to a sinful lifestyle you're committing iniquity it's when you're, you're sitting in front of that idiot box or you're sitting in front of that inter, internet and you're just taking it all in. It's when you're, you're in that den, if they would call it, the den of iniquity. You know, the old th- Three Dog Night song, Mama Told Me Not to Come. And, and the, you know, just you, you hear that song and, the, and I'm in the middle of the thing Mama said not to be in the middle of. That's a den of iniquity. You, dis- you, you read this description of, of guilt worthy of punishment from this Hebrew definition. And when you've reached this state of iniquity, you've reached a place in your life where evil is normal. And you call good, e- or you call good evil and evil good. And everything's upside down. We're cussing and sex and drugs and bitterness are just a way of life. It's just the world we live in. It's just the way it is. You've reached a place where immoral things just happen and continue to happen, and you've become accustomed to it and comfortable with it. The scriptures pointed out, and I want to give you another version of, of the word, but, but it's out of Romans chapter 1. And this is what a life of iniquity is. Listen to the word of the Lord. Romans 1, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They, in- they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so basically, over the past few decades, iniquity in our culture has become respectable. It's the thing to do. 20% of students in universities across America struggle with declaring that the Holocaust, the murder of 6 million Jews, is immoral. Because to declare something immoral... To declare something wrong means that there has to be something right. To declare the Holocaust evil means that there has to be good. And in the evolutionary mindset, where there isn't good or evil, there are no absolutes. To declare something immoral means that there has to be something moral. 
And they can't wrap their mind around that and acknowledge the Holocaust to be evil. 20% of the population in our, our university. Watch this video. This is Dr. Frank Turek. He's a PhD. And he goes to these public schools and he declares to these students, they can ask any question they want. He's done debates with uh, uh, Kitchener and a number of other uh, devout atheists. And um, he's, he's a remarkable man. But, but watch, do, do we have the video? Are we ready to play it? Yeah? Pull it up if you would. Okay, my last question is, earlier on in your presentation, you showed a picture of exterminated Jews at a concentration camp, correct? Yes. And you said that these bodies essentially were proof of the existence of a god, correct? No, no, no. Well, not proof, I, but what I'm trying to say is people would see these bodies and think that there's probably a God. No, 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 no. no. The argument was that a holocaust is objectively wrong. Well, and if something's objectively wrong, there must be something that's objectively right. How is it objectively wrong, though? Because the people who were committing it thought that what they were doing was right. Oh, people think all sorts of different things about right and wrong. That's not the point. The point is, if there's one thing morally wrong, then God exists. Just one. Well, if it's wrong to torture babies for fun or murder Jews in a holocaust. Well, that, that completely is dependent upon a person's view on torturing Jews or murdering babies. But the thing is that we as humans, we have empathy in us probably because it's designed to preserve our species. We don't have empathy necessarily because some god gave it to us. We have empathy so that we can preserve our own race. Okay, here's the problem. It's, it's a good question. It's kind of related to what, um, to what Will had said. So let me, let me answer it in a little bit more detail, and then we'll get to some other, other questions. Because the question is, can evolution explain morality? That's really the question that you're, you're saying. Well, we've got this empathy here, and that ought to explain it. First of all, moral laws are not chemical or biological. They're immaterial, and they come from personal agents. If there's no God, there's no such thing as a law. There just is chemicals. There just are biological entities. Secondly, chemistry and biology are descriptive, not prescriptive. Evolution describes what does survive, not what ought to survive. Why should humans survive? That would be speciesism. We just say, well, we humans, we ought to survive. Why? Opposable if there's no thumbs. God. What's that? Opposable thumbs. We're what? able to grasp <laughs> yeah, but things. Why? What, what's, what? Because that's what we need to survive and cope. No, no, I know, but why should we survive as opposed to any other species? Survival of the fittest. Right, that's exactly what Hitler believed in. And that's why he was trying to get rid of the unfit, because the unfit were taking resources from the fit. And so he wanted to create the super race. The question is, should he have done that? He's just following. In fact, if you read Mein Kampf, which was Hitler's book, his 1933 book, what he does is he quotes from Darwin. And he says, if the weaker race does not want to survive, and they, or if, if the weaker race does not want to fight, they have no right to survive. Also, should we rape to survive? I mean, if survival is our goal, maybe we ought to rape then, because we can propagate our DNA by raping, can't we? Yes, essentially, but we don't need to rape people when we have the ability to consent. That's true, but what the, the point here is, is consent, there's no reason to consent if there's no moral law, you can just rape and survive that way. You don't need consent. Also, should we murder the weak to help others to survive? That's Hitler's point. And by the way, since evolution is a process of change, then morals must change. 
rape may one day be considered good. I mean, if, if we're always in flux here, then one day we're going to say rape is good. Finally, why cooperate when not cooperating often helps you survive? Will made this point earlier when he's saying, look, you know, if I show empathy to you, you'll show empathy to me. Well, that's not even true. Stalin didn't show empathy to anybody except his inner circle, and he died on his deathbed after killing 20 million of his own countrymen, shaking his fist at God one last time. We can stop it there. So you don't have to cooperate to get along. In fact, quite often... (laughs) That's a student basically saying there's... The only reason why we have, we have opposable thumbs. If anyone's missing a thumb in the room, you need to run. (laughs) Survival of the fittest, there's no morals, there's no absolutes. The Holocaust is not wrong because it seemed right to them. Situational ethics. And and as, as he's sitting here, the rationale of the student trying to establish morality in the absence of a God is impossible. Because there are no laws, there's no absolute. And so what is right and what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral is irrelevant to somebody who can't comprehend the existence of God. You leave God out. You just say, forget it. And God says, fine, as we saw in in Romans chapter 1. He just says, you don't want me? Fine. Romans 1.28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And that's where we are. And, and we, we call it what we want to call it, and God says, fine, you're going to reap what you sow. And, and over the centuries, cultures have struggled with the basics of sin. Everyone in this room struggles with it because it's a room filled with human beings, and we're struggling with our sin, and we don't want to be confronted by it any more than David wanted to be confronted by it. We don't like to fail. We don't like to acknowledge our failure. We don't want to acknowledge we're wrong. And we certainly don't want to say that we're accountable to a God that we somehow have to repent and change. That's the natural human condition. That's where we are. We don't like to be caught. We don't like to be called on these things. So things like drunkenness, living together, adultery, fornication. Our nation, our nation has come to a place where we've made a decision, basically, to reject, reject God's morality. And it's permeated our culture from one end to the other, especially college campuses like you've seen here. That is 20% of the college students cannot declare that the Holocaust was morally wrong. An entire culture that can't tell good from evil because they don't believe either exists. We've gotten to the point where there's wholesale abortion of children in our nation, 70 million since 1973. And not only that, we sell their parts. We sell their parts at the highest levels of government. It's legit. Homosexuality has become acceptable. Homosexual marriage is encouraged. Anyone who opposes it is a bigot who faces lawsuits. HB2 in North Carolina, they're facing the NC2A and the ACC because they don't want transgender bathrooms. And now, now the NC2A and the ACC will be facing Title IX lawsuits because they can't definitively say who, what a woman is. It's going to come back right at them. They're, they're not, they don't even know what to do with this. Everything is just confusion. And they say they identify as a woman and they, can, they want to go into a woman's bathroom. Title IX is in trouble. They're going to be sued based on Title IX. People are going to make a lot of money off the NC2A. It's madness. Madness based on depravity and iniquity. Iniquity. 
something that deserves judgment. This is one author wrote, This iniquity now exists because we have rulers who have rejected God's standards in favor of a moral standard that boils down to nothing more than whatever you want to do is okay with me. People have actually used that kind of reasoning for centuries. They've, they haven't needed philosophers or intellectuals to help them twist their morality. When faced with something they want badly enough, lots of folks have made up their own morality, and their rationale usually goes something like this. The person caught in adultery said, I couldn't help myself. We just fell in love. We are destined to be together. The man with child pornography on his computer says, I couldn't help myself. That's just the way that I'm wired. I can't help myself. I was born that way. It's the same terminology, the same logic. The kind of immorality is based on who I am and what I judge to be moral. It doesn't matter if God says it's wrong. I have decided that it's right for me. Now, that's fine. But you're going to reap what you sow. And uh, have you guys ever heard that song? Sappy. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard that song? Yeah. <laughs> it's trivial, it's trash. I mean, just the whole thing about it. And yet, it talks about depravity and iniquity. Pretty much sums it up. That's the kind of thinking that got King David into his troubles. He said of Bathsheba, if loving you is wrong, then I don't want to be right. And I don't care if I have to murder Uriah. I don't, have, I don't care if it's going to destroy my family. I don't care if it's going to ruin the nation. I don't care if it's going to break the heart of not only uh, Eliam and Ahithophel and cause war and division and Absalom will be crushed and Bathsheba and the child of that will die and the nation will be ridiculed and mocked. I don't care. If, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. And I don't care what it costs or who's going to be affected by it. And David jumps in, feet first, head first. He's all in. The problem is he can't get rid of the kid. Your sins will find you out. And he tried to, he tried to make Uriah take the blame for it. He tried to get Uriah to be the scapegoat. And Uriah wouldn't play into it. And it's fascinating because David basically considered it to be Uriah's fault. If you can't cover your iniquity, it's easy to justify it by blaming someone else. When confronted with your sin, you can do one of three things. Blame others, make excuses, or repent. David said it's Uriah's fault. Had he just slept with her, we would all have been fine. And I don't care if he knew. He should have done it anyways to protect the kingdom. The ends justify the means. No, they don't. No, they don't. They don't. Once you remove God from the equation, you become the final judge of what is right and wrong. And here's the problem. At least you think you can do that. David thought he could do that. He thought he had gotten away with it. Only one problem. The Bible says all things are laid bare before the eyes of God. God saw. God always sees. Nothing is hidden from him. And God knew and God was furious. And we will be judged for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You put it into the ground and you're going to see the crop that will be produced. Hosea 8, 7, They have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. 
You can, you can ignore God if you want to. You can try to ignore God's morality. You can justify your sin. You can do whatever you want to do. You can leave him out of the picture all day long. That's your choice. You can redefine sin and call it your lifestyle. You can do whatever you want. But the day will come when God will be knocking at your door. And you'll stand before him as judge. It's appointed once for man to die, then judgment. And you'll stand before him and you won't be able to hide. It's like the woman dusting her house. She cleans the table and she cleans the lampshade and she cleans the window and then she opens up the blinds and the morning sun comes in and that light shows all of the areas she missed. And the, and the light of God will shine upon our souls and our lives. And we will see ourselves for who we really are, no matter what we've tried to disguise ourselves to be. And in the light of his purity, we will see how stained we really are. And it's sad because you can spend your life hiding from that sin and declaring its non-existence, but you will pay dearly. You will pay dearly. David trying to do that, it nearly destroyed his family. It nearly destroyed the kingdom. It nearly destroyed him. He was sick as a dog as a result of that. There aren't enough drugs on the planet to take away the guilt of something like that. David sowed the wind and he reaped the whirlwind. And it, it tagged him real good. So here's, here's what's interesting. What's all this about in the psalm? I mean, I'm baffled by it, quite frankly. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. He killed his best friend. He murdered him. He committed adultery with his best friend's wife and then murdered him. He mocked him in the community. He mocked his best counselor, Ahithophel. He mocked his, his, Bathsheba's father, Eliam, and Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel. Murdered the son-in-law and the grandson-in-law. All they ever did was serve David faithfully. They were transfers into Judaism. They were, they, they were Gileonites. David humiliated them. And he brought it down on the entire kingdom as the king. He just, he was vile. He was willing to stop at nothing. He doesn't deserve mercy. This is a sin worthy of punishment. Somebody murders your, your husband. It's a sin worthy of punishment. Hello? God couldn't possibly have compassion on him. God couldn't cleanse him of his sins. Are you kidding me? How could God wash away all of his iniquities? This man deserves to go to hell. Pastor's getting a little irritated. (laughs) It's hyperbole. Relax. Yeah, he deserves to go to hell, but then I'm looking around, there's a room of people. So so do you. Wait, oh, 
Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so do I. Some people are better at sinning than others. The wages of any sin is death, the scripture says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one in this building who deserves to go to heaven. You may struggle with that. And you can define your own morality and make up your own religion. And the Bible's filled with people who did bad things and made bad decisions. And that's what I love about the Bible. I mean, you think about Jacob. He lied and cheated his brothers. You got Judah who spent time with a woman he thought was a prostitute. Actually, was his daughter-in-law. <laughs> Moses killed an Egyptian taskmaster. Peter denied Christ. Paul persecuted the church and was responsible for the death of many Christians. And of course, David committed adultery and murder by proxy. Paul even wrote of himself. The, Paul, the great apostle Paul wrote of himself in, in Timothy. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst, or I'm the chief of sinners. But for that very reason, I was shown the mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul was saying that God showed him mercy to prove it could be done. You know what's really cool about mercy? It's not getting what you deserve. Mercy's greater than grace. Mercy, grace comes out of the heart of mercy. First, you, 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 can't, you, you're, you don't receive what you deserve, and then you get what you don't deserve, which is blessing. God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. Until you understand that you're not worthy of forgiveness, but that you've been given mercy and grace, you're not going to fully understand what you have in Jesus Christ or how precious he is. You don't know how valuable a life preserver is on an airplane until the pilot says we're going down and you're just reaching for that thing. The whole flight, you didn't even know it was there. Napoleon passed sentence on one of his soldiers. I love this illustration. Napoleon passed sentence on one of his soldiers as a deserter. And he would sentence him to death. And the young man's mother came to Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that justice demanded his death. And the woman says, but I don't ask for justice. The mother exclaimed, I plead for mercy. And then Napoleon said, but your son does not deserve mercy. Napoleon replied. And she said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. You understand that? God gives mercy to those who seek him on his terms. Not yours, not mine, his. He gives mercy to those who believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. He gives mercy to those who are willing to recognize that they have sinned and are willing to repent of their sin. Change, turn, just say, God, I agree with you. That's what repentance is. God gives mercy to those who are willing to make Jesus Christ the Lord and master of their life. He gives mercy to those who are willing to live the rest of their lives for him. Psalm 103, these words are profound. Let them minister to your heart right now because we've all found ourselves in this cesspool. Let's get out of it. Listen to the words of the Lord to your heart. This is for you and me. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, 
So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. There are earthly consequences for sin, yes. But we come to him on his terms. God brings healing to our soul and hope to our future. Just like he did for David. Revelation 5 says that Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Echoing through the lineage of David. God chose through his lineage that Jesus' name would be declared. That the Messiah would come through the line of David. Lion of the tribe of Judah. God showed him mercy. God showed Paul mercy. God's waiting to show you and me mercy. We're not worthy of forgiveness, but we've been given mercy. And Jesus paid that penalty for us that we would have forgiveness of our sins. I share this with you because one of the things that hinders us from coming to a place of receiving mercy from the Lord is the fact that we can't acknowledge our sin. We come to a place where we, we want to justify it as opposed to confess it and repent of it. And there are different magnitudes of sin. The wages of sin is death, but there are greater consequences for certain sins on this earth. Jesus is the one who said it, not me. Matthew 23, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. There are heavier laws to be concerned with. There are levels that are very important in our culture. Justice and mercy and faith are greater than cumin or cumin. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside may be clean also. Not all sins are the same. I mean, you're at a restaurant, you're drinking a glass of water, you get down to that last gulp, and you see a smudge on the bottom that looks just mucusy, and you're like... Please, God, let that be on the outside of the cup. You reach your hand around and you're like, no, it isn't on the outside of the cup. Oh. Ah. <laughs> Trying to hold that down. Oh. <laughs> clean it. You, you, you clean the outside and you think you got it all set because you come to church and you look so good. What a good looking room. But you know deep inside those things that God wants that you're unwilling to give and you're justifying it and making excuses for it. And you say, you know, not all, you know, all sins are the same. They aren't. They aren't. They have greater consequences. Let me give you an example. Rape is a far more debilitating and miserable sin than physical assault. You, you hit somebody... You rape somebody. Both are physical assaults, but one hits you emotionally and spiritually. It goes to the depths of your soul. And we can acknowledge that there is a level to that that is just unimaginable and vile. And it devastates communities. 
children abandoned by their parents? For what? The sake of self-fulfillment? Think about the sex is like fire. You know, fire in a fireplace in a home warms you and it's lovely and it's comforting. You put that fire anywhere else in your house and it burns a thing down. Sex in the context of marriage is amazing. Sex outside of marriage is sin that destroys a culture. Sex is an expression of intimacy, both physical, emotional, and spiritual. You connect on all three levels of the trichotomy of man, and God gives you this expression of the most intimate of connections in the human understanding. Outside of that, you have two people engage in an act, and people say, oh, sex is just a physical activity. If that's all it is, the, 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 the pictures in pornography become degrading, humiliating, and violent because two people are engaging in something that's supposed to be expressing intimacy, and neither even knows who the other is. And so they're just two objects abusing one another. And then you get to the rape fantasies and all the other misery that just inundates culture. And then, and then you, you, you attack purity and you go to the innocent, you go to the young, and then the child pornography. And it just takes on this devastating effect in culture. All because we just want to find ourselves. Sex is too difficult because you have to relate to somebody. You have to, you have to spend time hearing their struggles. You have to come to a place where, where you have an understanding and your souls connect. Instead, we just, we just want to do what we want to do. I don't need all the hassle. And there's always somebody willing for the act, but not the intimacy. Yeah, some sins are worse than others. It's probably going to struggle some people, but let's be clear. HB2 in North Carolina and struggling with transgender bathroom bills and same-sex marriage and all the stuff that our culture is facing. Let's, let's be candid here. Homosexuals didn't bring a same-sex marriage. Heterosexuals did. That hurts. Everybody's saying, I don't know about that, Pastor. In my office, I got pictures of Ronald Reagan. Hero, first president I ever voted for. He was governor of California, January 1st, 1970, 46 years ago. He signed the very first in the nation, no-fault divorce. 46 years, no-fault divorce. No pastors argued it. Nobody came out and no churches decried it. Nobody said anything. No-fault divorce, just no-fault divorce. Gone were the idea that that you could, you could declare someone violated a promise by adultery. Someone violated a promise by spousal abuse. Now you can enter in and you can just say, I want greener pastures, I'm out of here. And we're just going to dissolve this agreement. And basically, no-fault divorce is this. The desires of the adults take precedent over the purpose of marriage, which is the protection of children and the culture of the family. I just want greener pastures. I'm out of here. No fault. We don't have to, agreements, just go find whatever you need to do. So the desires of the adults took precedent over the welfare of the children. And ready for this? Ready? And be honest. How many people, and this isn't a condemnation, this is a result in our culture. Let's be real. How many people in this room have been affected or have experienced divorce 
Raise your hand. Raise them. I want people to see them. Raise your hands. You see this? You can put them down. How many children have suffered because of divorce? Raise your hands. Just look around. Put them down. Ronald Reagan signed that in 46 years ago. No-fault divorce before it became common. One spouse would have alleged a particular reason for the divorce, even if both spouses wanted the divorce, such as adultery or cruelty. And here's some problems with no-fault divorce. It makes divorce too easy. Growing up in a two-parent family home has its advantages, and any sociologist can declare that. There may also be advantages to a system which puts some of the barriers to divorce up for, for parents. I mean... There isn't a couple in this room who are married that haven't had a real good drag-down fight. And if you have, you're the exception, rare exception, not the rule. I, I, I live with the sweetest human being on the planet, and I've still managed to get her upset. I am gifted. <laughs> you too, brother? And so we fight but we endeavor to keep the union of the spirit and the bond of peace. We work it out. Fifth year of marriage, you stay your divorce. The potential of divorce, if you make it to the fifth year, drops exponentially. And yet, when we leave and we break up, these children struggle. God designed the family, father and mother, kids, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents. It'll go well with you. Live long on the earth. The weakest have the most levels of protection. It's a building block of culture and society. It protects us as, as families, and we strive together, and there's somebody to relate to. And, and men learn how to be men from their fathers, and women learn how to be women, or girls learn how to be women from their, their mothers. And, and girls learn how to find a godly man by the way that their father loves their mother. And, and men learn about how to find a godly wife by observing how their mother loves their father and you have these identity aspects and you you just strengthen them and you have homes to visit at Thanksgiving instead of having to go to two or three different homes and wondering, you know, it's, it's so convoluted and so screwed up, but somewhere along the line, the church said, hey, Sexual revolution, the 70s are here, Reagan's in office, let's sign this in, California, we are, and Calvary Chapel started in 1965, and we've been preaching that gospel verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we don't do politics, we certainly don't engage in public policy, and we're the state responsible for no-fault divorce, so we've had 10,000% growth, all conversion growth, not transfer growth, and the lion's share of the 1600 Calvary Chapels right here in California. We lead the nation in abortion. We lead the nation in divorce. We lead the nation in every social dysfunction imaginable because we don't engage in the public square. We're, we're pietistic. We separate the secular from the holy. They look at me and they go, why would you run for office? Because these rulings affect our culture. The introduction of no-fault divorce has led to a six-fold increase of divorce in two years after the signing of that bill. Two thousand five Ellison research study of eight hundred and seventy two Protestant churches showed that only twenty eight percent of the churches offered any type of marriage enrichment course. We love to stand against, you know, same sex marriage, but we don't give a flip about godly marriage. 
We'll put on programs for marriage and we'll have you come in to strengthen your marriage and go through finance classes and, and be able to teach younger children and pour into their lives. And nobody wants to do that. In no fault divorce, you can be forcibly separated from your children, your home, your property, also literally no fault of your own. Failure to cooperate with a divorce opens up innocent spouses to criminal penalties. No fault divorce made divorce far more destructive by allowing the state to undertake court proceedings against innocent people, confiscate everything they have, and incarcerate them without trial. It's not a matter of forcing anyone to remain married. Please understand that. Listen, this is what it's about. The issue is taking responsibility for one's actions and abrogating an agreement before God Almighty. With no-fault divorce, the spouse who divorces without grounds or otherwise breaks the marriage agreement, for example, by adultery or desertion, thereby incurs no onus of responsibility. Indeed, the spouse gains that advantage. I'm going to close with just three writings. This is the first in regards to no-fault divorce. You may be surprised to learn that the initial efforts to advance no-fault divorce legislation were underwritten by Hugh Hefner through the Playboy Foundation, which financed an army of young lawyers working to advance anti-family policies, America's largest pornographer working to rewrite public policy related to the family. There's something seriously wrong with this picture. In addition to Hugh Hefner, Alfred Kinsey also played an instrumental role in reducing these legal protections by falsely reporting that adultery was commonplace in most marriages. This reduced the stigma associated with adultery and ultimately served as a basis for eliminating all laws against adultery. Hefner and Kinsey both saw that marriage is the final barrier to sexual freedom and thus determined to remove its inhibiting influence upon unrestrained sexual activity. And then second, no-fault divorce is much more than just divorce. It is legal tyranny that denies the fundamental right of due process to a defendant. Prior to no-fault divorce, the party seeking divorce, plaintiff, was required by law to demonstrate cause on the part of the other party, defendant, prior to dissolving the marriage, dividing the family's assets, and destroying the two-parent structure essential for children. These measures provided long legal protections primarily to women and children who might otherwise find themselves abandoned by husbands and fathers who simply sought greener pastures. And then finally, this is the travesty of justice. It is a travesty of justice that affects more than a million families each and every year. Here we go. With an annual related cost to taxpayers of more than 48 billion dollars. This cost doesn't even begin to consider the secondary societal effects of family disillusion upon crime rates, welfare roles, emotional and psychological effects upon the children of divorce. No-fault divorce has created an easy divorce culture, which according to Maggie Gallagher, an affiliate scholar at the Institute of American Values and a nationally syndicated columnist, demotes marriage from a binding relation into something best described as cohabitation with insurance benefits. Iniquity. And we all look at it and we all raised our hands and we're all neck deep in it. And God doesn't come to condemn. He comes to forgive, but we must be honest to receive mercy. Do we really value marriage from God's perspective? We've all made mistakes, no doubt. We've all been in the world of dysfunction and we've all suffered the pains of divorce. This is not condemnation. This is a call to repentance. Let's value marriage.
Let's encourage marriage. Let's stand by marriage. Let's set an example for marriage. It's a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. And if you want people to see Jesus, then love one another as Christ has loved you. Don't quit. He never quit on you. Don't quit on each other. You see, the power of it is when you lay your life down and you serve one another as Christ has served you and you're merciful. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. You want it, you got to give it. Christ said it. And God creates in you a clean heart. He renews a steadfast spirit within you. He gives you a joy of your salvation and he shows you the power of what a family designed in the way God wanted is is to touch and affect a culture in a positive and profound way. And this is what he says to those who understand it today. Now I give you the great privilege to teach transgressors about God's ways that sinners would be converted to him. Because we of all people know the power of marriage. We know what it's like to love one another as Christ has loved us. It's his kindness that has led us to repentance. Let's, let's do this as a culture. We're not the subculture. We're the counterculture. Why do, we, why do we keep trying to be like everybody else? Why can't we be what he wanted us to be? Agree with him and walk in, a, in, the, in accordance with what he desires. And God will do an amazing thing in and through our lives. This is an encouragement to you. Mercy is waiting for you. And all you have to do is say, God... I agree with you. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I want to do things your way. And God says yes and amen. That's a pretty good deal. Amen? Let's pray. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and blot out my transgressions. I was brought forth in iniquity, But God, you've forgiven me and cast my sin as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And all I could ever ask of you was mercy. And as Napoleon said, he doesn't deserve mercy. And as the woman replied, well, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. God, we deserve punishment. And today you say to us, come to me. Come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden. You recognize your iniquity and I have come to give you mercy. I want to cleanse you and I want to set you free and I want to put you on a new path to do things the way God had always intended. And Lord, that's us. We want to live for righteousness. We want to teach transgressors your ways. Help us, God. And for the men and women struggling today and their past is behind them, Lord, you say in Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good with those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, you have the ability to take something broken and make it more valuable broken than it appeared to be when it was whole. And so take those pieces and make a mosaic that people will marvel at the beauty of. Help everyone in this room to realize what a good God you are. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.